Andy, come on up. I asked uh, Andy Hefty as our official church Bible scripture or passage reader to read a passage of scripture because it's long, and I think he reads it really well. And I think I honestly believe when scripture is read well, that there is understanding that's gained. And so Andy's going to read this passage to you. If you have your Bibles, open your Bibles up to the beginning of John chapter 5. If you don't, you might be able to follow on the screen, but Andy is going to read this to you, so open your ears. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, or because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Amen. Thanks, Andy. Let's pray. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would take that word and you would uh, sink it down into our hearts, that you would plant it even at the beginning as a, as a seed, and you would till our hearts, that you'd make good soil, that you would uh, give us a place of receptivity, even as we just hear the word. We trust fact, the fact, Lord, that your word will never return void. And I don't think that means that you just want to do something in one heart. I think that means that you have something for everyone. And so, Lord, make us willing, make us receptive, make us ready, and then do whatever you want to do, Jesus. We we grant you the space and we grant you the place in our hearts. And come and fill it. In Jesus' name, amen. So Carol and I literally got back less than 24 hours ago from an uh, from amazing whirlwind trip to Israel. Uh, we were there for, I don't know, a little more than 10 days. And um, somebody asked me this morning, hey, are you going to talk about that? And I said, probably not, just because I don't think I could keep my thoughts straight. Uh, one, I'm a little jet lagged. Two, which means I have to really have good notes, which means I'm a little more tied to my notes than normal because I'm afraid of where my mind might go. I did sleep yesterday. I slept from two to six in the afternoon, nine to 11, and about 11.30 to three. So, I mean, Carol, on the other hand, when she passed out around six, slept till, what, <laughs> seven this morning. That's, a, that's, a, that's the way you sleep. And so... My mind works differently. I wake up, and then I have thoughts, and I have to deal with those thoughts, and then I can go back to sleep for a while, and then I wake up, and then I, you know, so it's a pattern. So, um, but we did have an amazing trip. We went to places that you just don't ever get to go. We were in uh, the Border Patrol Police headquarters inside the Temple Mount with the Israeli Border Patrol at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Nobody gets to go there. We got to go there and, and, and pray for these guys whose job it is to, to oversee peace. We were there the day before. There was a, there was a, a riot the next morning. Jewish, pe- Jewish men prayed on the Temple Mount, and it caused an up- uprising. Uh, we were able to go down to, to the city of David and walk on pavement at an archaeological dig that's not open to the public uh, and, and walk on the same pavement and see ash from palm branches that's been covered that, could very well have been palm branches burned on a day when people said something like Hosanna. You know, um, we were able to go down to the Gaza border and pray at the wall of the Gaza border and leave messages of peace. And um, we were able to hear from, from leaders and, and generals and um, 
you know, spiritual giants. We went to a conference that was three or four days that was like drinking from a, well, like about 10 or 12 fire hoses just perpetually going and firing off. And you're saying, you know, Selah. You're saying no more, no more, no more. On one hand, the other, you're saying more, more, more. And we, we joined our hearts together with, with like-hearted, like-minded brothers and sisters. And uh, I, I suppose if anybody came by at 9 in the morning at a session, they would have said, man, these guys are drunk at 9 in the morning. And, we, and, and maybe one of our leaders would have said, not as you suppose. Um, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was, was real and fantastic. And so if you want to hear more, if you want to hear specifics about what the Lord was doing or is doing and accomplishing in that part of the world, um, let's go have a meal. Uh, I think that these are conversations better had at a table where we can get into, into specifics. But I can tell you that, our, that we came back with our hearts absolutely full. And I have a message that is in a way tied to this trip. But in a way, it's not. I mean, I'll tell you how it is. One of the great joys of this trip is a dear friend of mine named Sarah Coiner was on this trip. And Sarah was the princess of the trip and the valedictorian of the class that we graduated from an online school uh, that was there. And she also has cerebral palsy. She's about 44 years old, which is kind of sort of really old for that particular disease. And she, we carried her up and down flights of stairs. She's confined to a chair. And she is oftentimes overlooked because she's not verbal, but she has a brilliant mind and a prophetic gift. And it was amazing to hear her voice and the word of God speaking through her. And in many ways, um, I just think the Lord has given me a heart or a gift, and not that I'm gifted, but a gift in me to see something in people like Sarah that I think we often overlook. I tell people she lives her life closer to the feet of Jesus, and it's amazing to me. Uh, and we cannot overlook people they, who we would call, we, we use this word disability, but I, I don't think it's a good word. I think a better word is just, you know, um, different abilities, different abilities. And I think Sarah's abilities exceed mine in so many ways. And so Sarah is a person who in the age to come will have a different way of, 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 of relating to the Lord. And I don't know what he'll do, but she's somebody who's extremely likable. And today I want to talk about a person who's come, who fits into a different category. I, I, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be, I don't know if I wanted to be, people told me I should be an attorney, kid, teachers and so forth would tell me that. I think it's mostly because I had diarrhea of the mouth and I like to argue, um, not because I was very good at maybe being, having a legal mind and all that, but, um, uh, but I, 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 do, I do have a lot of attorney friends and um, believe it or not, when you're in ministry, you still need attorneys. <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, I remember asking a friend of mine long ago, and before I was in ministry, a guy who's in trial work, he became a judge. And I said, when he was still an attorney, I said, yeah, how do you handle representing people who are like bad people? Like to me, I'm so engaged in relationships, you know, how do you, what, what is it like when you have to represent people who are, who aren't likable even, you know, not, not, not let alone, you don't really believe them, but you have to, you know, what is that like? And he said, to me, I remind myself my role is that of an attorney, not that of a judge. It's a pretty profound way to answer that, and it's exactly the situation I find myself in this morning because I'm about to offer to you a defense of a man I don't particularly like. Uh, I don't like his, his faults or his personality, to be honest with you. There's something about him that just annoys me. It's, uh, there was an old uh, screenwriter, screenwriter, playwright by the name of Adela Rogers St. John who recommended that we choose our friends for their faults. That we be careful to choose our friends for their faults because it's important that our friends have faults we can live with. And this guy's faults are the kind I would rather not be around. And so, uh, but I do believe, as any good attorney would tell you, that everyone has a right to a passionate defense. So I'm going to take on this guy's case even though it's unappealing to me. And in truth, I'm probably trying to convince myself a lot more than to convince you. And no matter what you think, you know, this is a sincere effort. I will tell you at the outset of this that I actually have people over the course of a long ministry, people who hold this place in my heart. And I, at the risk of, uh, of being unkind, I'll show you a picture of a guy that many of you might remember um, in the, in, who, to me, is very much representative of this. He's a guy by the name of Daniel. Do we have that picture? Some of you might remember this guy who hung around our church for a long while. 
And uh, Daniel, for me, is very reminiscent of the type of person who, who I think uh, uh, sometimes is really hard to like. Uh, and so let me tell you a story. Andy read you the passage of Scripture, but let me break it down as a story a little more for you. In Jesus' time, there was a pool that was legendary for its miraculous healing properties and powers. Um, it's the pool that was outside the Sheep Gate, which no longer exists. And today's, if you went to visit Israel today, this pool still exists, and you can visit the ruins of it. It's inside the Muslim quarter, so it's just north of the temple, you know, Mount, and it's inside of the walls that are now, you know, surround the old city. Uh, you can still go visit this 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 area. It was uh, the, the the pool of uh, that was originally known as the Sheep Pool. Uh, but then became a, a, a place of gathering and holding clean water. So they probably didn't, you know, dip, bathe the sheep in there anymore. It was a place for, uh, it was a cistern. And it was known to be a place that on occasion, uh, healing would break out in a profound and miraculous kind of way. Um, some people associated the healing times with the festivals, particularly Pesach, that there was healing... And there was a story that would circulate around that there were angels that would appear there, and an angel in particular would, would dip his wing down into the water and stir the waters. And once the angel stirred the waters, then there was healing in the waters. And the first one who went into the waters, the first ones that got into the waters, were those who would receive healing. And this was the story that, uh, uh, that, 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 that exists in John chapter 5. Jesus has made his way into this area. We don't know exactly. It says it's a time of a feast. We don't know which feast exactly it was there for, um, but he's there, and he makes his way to visit this pool, or maybe he's just heading to the temple. I don't really know, but he finds himself in an encounter with this guy, and at this pool lays the man that I'm trying to defend. I don't know how long he had been there. The gospel of John just says simply it had been a long time in verse 6. We do know this about him. He'd been, he'd been sick or ill or, or unable to walk, paralyzed for, about thir- for 38 years. Has anybody struggled with something for 38 years? You don't have to raise your hand. I can almost, almost assuredly tell you that that 38-year illness, that 38-year issue a 38 year maybe we call it you know in today's parlance disability didn't happen from birth because if it happened from birth what would John have told us that he'd been he'd been this way from birth and so we're not sure exactly what his illness is what it is that's 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 his infirmity but it has something to do you can infer from this with his ability to walk because Jesus commands him in healing to do what to take up his mat and walk um, and so if this illness came upon him as a young man, which I think is reasonable to assume, then he's about my age. He's, he's mid-50s, maybe 60, which I'll give you a clue is ancient for a first century man. I mean, it's not young for this day and age, but it's ancient for, that, for the time when Jesus was walking around. And so 38 years of being an invalid in that environment or in that culture is unfathomable. Well, for a lot of reasons. Number one, I can tell you walking through Jerusalem for a day is exhausting. Exhausting. When you're able-bodied and you're walking around, your bo- by the time you lay down at night, your body's aching, your calves and your, you know, and your, your, your quads and everything up and down. Nothing's level. Everything's uneven. Everything's slippery. Everything's rocky, tricky, and it's not easy, let alone for someone who has been unable to walk for 38 years. He's confined to this... Uh, to, to this mat, and he's also confined to a culture that deems people who are unable to care for themselves as being outside the camp. So when Jesus deals with things like rich and poor in his economic worldview, he's not necessarily thinking about it the way you are right now. And we say rich and poor, we have a vertical understanding, don't we? Climb the ladder to success and get to the, you know, if you're rich, you're at the top of the ladder. If you're poor, you're at the bottom of the ladder. We see it vertically like it's a ladder. But in Jesus' time and kind of the kingdom economics of the first century, he would have drawn a circle, and he'd say anybody inside the circle is rich, no matter what they have or don't have. 
and anybody outside the circle is poor. And anybody outside the circle were people who were like had diseases or disabilities or were widowed or, or, had, or, or their sin couldn't be forgiven. They were cast outside the camp and they were caused to live on the periphery of culture. Unable to get around on really difficult terrain up and down and unable to, unable to live within the, the, the culture that existed as an able-bodied person who could contribute to the culture and be seen as an equal. This is, imagine this. I mean, I don't know if you're getting it. Fif- 38 years of begging or depending on your family and friends for everything. And as you're going to see as we get into it, this guy doesn't have a very good attitude. And apparently, if you read not even so much between the lines, all of his supporters are now gone. <laughs> He's worn them all out, or at the very least, they're unable or they're unwilling to accompany him every day to the pool. So he lays there, and he's alone, and he's frustrated, and he's completely dependent upon the people around him. And this man, in, in my mind, I think hope is one of the most addictive, is perhaps the most addictive drug that exists in the world, to have hope. You know, if you have hope, you can hang in there for about anything. And if you have hopelessness... It can drag you down into the depths of anything. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And what I see in this man is a really interesting case of a guy where hope and hopelessness are colliding together. This is a case of hope combined with hopelessness. And how do I see that? Well, he has something like hope because he comes to this pool day in, day out. And maybe he just lives at the pool. I don't know. Maybe he never leaves there. But yet, when he's there, he doesn't seem to have very little hope that he's ever going to have the favor that would cause him to win healing on that day. And, you know, every time that there's something happening in the waters, he's not, everybody has a little community. Don't you know that they're in this kind of community of hopelessness, there's kind of a camaraderie? And people kind of care for one another, and you take care of one another until the waters are stirred. And then it's every man for himself. I'm getting mine. And so this guy, who has no way to get down to the waters, sees the hope erode every time something's happening and somebody else receives healing. And, but for him, never. And at this point of the story, if I just stopped here, my predominant feeling for the guy is I feel sorry for him. Do you? Do you feel that? Do you feel the weightiness of this guy's story and... Um, I can't imagine that kind of existence. My very limited view of being sick or injured really is a couple of times in my life, once I was sick and in the hospital for a while, and I, 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 I can tell you that I wasn't, I'm not a good patient. Most women aren't. <laughs> Most people aren't. I definitely was, am not a good patient in a lot of ways, and I, I, I just don't want to lay there and be sick. And you know what I really don't want? I don't want you to come visit me. No, I don't want you to come visit I'm laying in a bed with my underwear, you know, and the, the gown isn't long enough, and just pray at home. I don't want you to come. I'm sick. I don't want you there. I want to go under the porch like a, like a sick dog, and I'll come out when I'm feeling better. Is anybody with me? Now, if you're the type of person you want a lot of company, I'm sorry, I can tell you as a pastor, I'll come visit you and pray for you, but it's, it's counterintuitive. It's, so I don't even want the nurses coming in and out. Just leave me alone. I, I was in the, the, in the one experience where I was there, and I had this a lot of stuff going on. I had to share a room with a guy for a while, and he was really, he had a lot of people that were, that were coming to see him, and we had a curtain between us. And I'm telling you, this literally happened. So there's a, the, his bed, my bed, and a curtain. And he had so many people visiting that somebody kind of was leaning into the curtain, and leaning back a little more and more, and then they felt my bed, so they knew they had a place to support themselves. So somebody visiting the guy next to me was literally sitting on my bed. <laughs> and I think the nurses had so much sympathy for what I was, that they finally they got me a room as soon as I could on my own. And then they didn't visit me much unless they had to. Another time I... I I broke my leg really bad. Anybody remember when I broke my leg really bad? Yeah, and for almost six months, I couldn't walk. And for, a lot, for the beginning part of that, I was, I was on my own. 
Can I tell you the worst thing for me is being on my own? It, you guys, how many of you like alone time to kind of recharge? I can't stand it. I was hanging out with a guy in Israel, at, at, Rich Stevenson. You all know Rich. We were having breakfast. Carol wasn't there yet. He and I are having breakfast. He's an extreme introvert. I'm an extreme extrovert. We've been together for maybe 30 minutes. He's done eating. He's like, I, I'm just going to get out of here and go be alone for a minute. And I was like, wait, don't leave me here alone. <laughs> the, 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 the place is full, and I know somebody would have come over to me, but the idea of being there for 30 seconds alone was just, and it was just freaking me out. And so being alone for a couple of months hanging out in the, in the, on the, on the couch where I couldn't even go upstairs in our house and do anything, it was depressing. It's the closest thing to being in a, in a place of real depression I've ever known in my life. I couldn't pray. I didn't really, I mean, this was really, really hard. I'm not very good at it. And so I feel sorry for the guy. I can't imagine this for 38 years. And if you can't feel the weight of it, I don't think you're really thinking about it. I wonder, though, beyond what it does to a person in terms of their spirit, you know, Proverbs 13, the wise writer of the Proverbs says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, right? How long can a person wait with their dreams like that unanswered before they, he or she begins to lose heart? For me, a couple months. How many times can you reach for the gold, you know, and come up empty and, and, and before you stop reaching? But one day, <laughs> Jesus walks into his life. I, can I tell you that's the most magnificent and important detail that could ever be spoken over any human's life? But one day, Jesus walked into life. A friend of mine used to say, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. But one day, the king walked into his life. King's horses and king's men couldn't do it, but the king himself could. And one day, Jesus walks into this guy's life, and everything changes. It's kind of sort of a moment where I want to step aside and go, has he walked into your life? Has he walked into your life? Has he encountered you in a way where the things that might feel broken or irreparable, he's touched those things? And if you're going, I don't even know if that's true, I can tell you haven't met my Jesus. Jesus comes by to visit the pool, and he sees this guy there, and everything changes. This man doesn't even know who Jesus is. So when Jesus asks him, do you want to be made well, the guy answers him with what I think was probably like his stock reply. Andy reads scripture so well, but I don't think he nailed this guy. Because I think this guy whines with some sort of computer, you know, like, like push the button of, you know, you know, he, he gets a question, he just pushes a button. He has tapes in his mind, in his heart, that play over and over and over again. Somebody meets him new. What are you doing here? And so he responds to Jesus, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. And the water stirred up. When the water gets stripped, nobody can take me down there. And while, I, while I'm making my way, everyone steps ahead of me. I, I, I feel the sadness of his answer. But I have to confess that, that some other feelings well up in me, too. And the operative word in that sentence is confess. Because I don't like my feelings when I, when I encounter the story. I said a moment ago that his answer came in a kind of a whine, right? And, and I guess that... That term, that word wine, kind of indicates my perception of this guy's struggle. I find myself contrasting him with another guy who's crippled named Bartimaeus, who's a beggar who was, well, actually, he's crippled, he's blind. And when Jesus passes by, he called out to Jesus for healing, and Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? You know what Bartimaeus didn't do? Bartimaeus didn't give him an answer with a long report about his history and how he'd been blind and bumped into things and how it had been hard for him. You know what he said to Jesus? My teacher... Let me see again. I like that answer a lot. Bottom line, right? Let's get to it. And when Jesus asked this guy at the pool if he wants to be healed, I want him to answer simply, yeah. What do you think I want? Sitting here for 38 years at the pool, yes, I want healing, yes. But instead, this guy tells Jesus why he hasn't already been healed. And his answer that he gives Jesus is one part apology and another part excuse, and another part complaint. And when he says that he has nobody there to help him, I kind of wonder why, you know? You ever grown tired of helping people? Now, I mean, keep in mind, I'm not just raising a question about the quality of this guy's friends. Maybe he didn't have the best friends. I don't know. I'm really more wondering about his personality. And, and some of our friends 
aren't as compassionate as they should be. That's true. Look, that's just the world we live in. The church, unfortunately, doesn't do much better than the world in terms of our, our, our compassion quotient. And we can get compassion fatigue or we get tired of helping people. You know, when we get tired, we get tired when they don't respond the way we want them to respond or the way we think they should respond. Or when we just get kind of empty because we're not, we're not getting filled with Jesus. We're just giving from our own resources and reserves and we get done. And some, sometimes our friends aren't as compassionate as they should be. And I think all of us know what it's like in a time of trouble to see our friends kind of, you know, they kind of sort themselves out by their degrees of caring. Some people care, are better caregivers. Some people, you know, they barely can care at all. But, you know, there's, there's categories. But also, some of us have observed, and, you know, you don't have to, I'm not asking for any answers or hand raising here. Some of us have observed sometimes extremely high maintenance people who make it difficult for their friends to remain involved and attentive, right? You ever, you ever been guilty of that attitude yourself? I have been. Come visit me in the hospital. And you're like, man, I'm not sure I'm going to go back. So Jesus responds to this guy's weird response. How? By healing him. But he does so with a condition. The crippled guy has to fully cooperate. He says, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. To which the guy might have said, wait, what? My, uh, you want me to carry my mat? My mat's been carrying me for 38 years. You want me to literally, and this, isn't this the way Jesus just blows us away where he completely flips the script? He says, actually, your mat from now on is crippled. That thing that's been carrying you that, you know, you have to have like four guys or whatever, however, you know, crawling around in your belly. Now you're going to carry it. And so in order for you to, to live into the healing that I'm speaking over, you actually have to get up and walk and carry your mat. And to the formerly crippled guy's credit, he does exactly what Jesus commands and he gets up. Now, can I take just a couple minute break from that and give you a little bit of a breakdown? This is, this is maybe the meaty teaching section because I don't want to kind of get off kilter when, when you have questions in your mind about healing. The New Testament describes so many different ways that people can be healed. And I'm going to give you an answer at the end of this of which one I believe in or which ones I believe in. It says things like this. The elders of the church can anoint someone with oil and pray for them and they, they may be healed. Right? James chapter 5. Familiar with that one? Heard that one before? Raise your hand if you heard that one before. Okay. It says God's people can lay hands on each other in prayer, ask God for healing, and people may be healed in Mark 16. The, the longer part of Mark 16 that we don't like to read. You know, about poison and snakes and speaking in tongues and all that. Anybody read that before? Longer part of Mark 16? It says God can actually grant somebody with a gift of healing that could actually be directly for them, that they can be healed, or the power to bring healing to another person, 1 Corinthians 12. Anybody ever heard of that in the, in the spiritual gifts? It says God may grant healing in response to the faith of a person who desires to be healed. That's in Matthew 9. It says God may grant healing in response to the faith um, of another person uh, on whose behalf they're healed, like Mark 2 or Matthew 8. It says God may heal through medical treatment. It also says that the body itself is designed by God to heal. Did you know that, right? The body's designed by God to heal. The Bible also says that this is healing. Heal me, Lord. And he says, no, I won't take that thorn from your flesh. But my grace is sufficient because my power is made perfect in your weakness. And his, his answer to our cry for the thorn to come out sometimes is no, because I'm going to do more with the thorn in you than if it came out. He says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more in my weakness that his power might be made perfect in me. So one of the ways God heals is actually responding not with more what we would call healing, but more grace. And I'm going to tell you the final way that he heals, and it's one that's going to trouble you most, particularly, I mean, we're a charismatic church, but if you're, if you're, if you're further down the scale than I do, you might not like this one as much. God heals through death. That's the weighty one, isn't it? It's a lot easier to reconcile that in our hearts when somebody's saw that, you know, Francis McNutt from Christian Healing Ministries just passed away recently at 98 years old or something. It's really easy to say to a 98-year-old, well, God's brought him into full healing now. It's a lot harder to do that when somebody's 10. 
which one of these do I put my faith in? Yes. <laughs> all of them, every one of them. I believe God does heal in all these different ways. Let me cut back into the story, though. After this guy is instructed by Jesus to take up his mat and walk, he tells us a really important de detail. He says it's Shabbat. And the Sabbath day, the time of rest from all work. And I don't know how many of us in our culture even remotely grasp the importance of the significance of Shabbat. But Shabbat is something that's so beautiful and so profound that we have to fight for it. We have to, we, we are so on the opposite end of Shabbat that it's hard for us to grasp how weighty this is, what's going on in this story. It, it, if you go to Israel today, Shabbat, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, and basically from midday Friday until, until the sun goes down on Saturday, most things close down. Transportation, restaurants, you know, businesses. Depending on where you are, the further you get away from Jerusalem, the more the rules get bent. The closer you are to Jerusalem, the more significantly that's, that's observed. Anybody ever been there in Jerusalem on Shabbat? Try to get something to eat? About 9 o'clock at night, though, the place comes alive. And so Shabbat is goes back all the way to the very beginning of the Bible when God himself rests from his work. And John tells us that this healing takes place on Shabbat. For some reason, Jesus just loves to heal on the Sabbath. He gets into this perpetual fight with the religious elite about whether it's okay or not. And Jesus seems to say, I think any day is a good day to help somebody. Somebody's suffering, I can bring healing. Any, this is as good a day as any. And as soon as this formerly crippled guy is confronted by some people who tell him that, that he ought not to be working on the Sabbath. How is he working? He's carrying his mat. And Matt carrying his work. And so you're not, not Matt like Matt Pros, but like his, his, his probably would be work as well, but like his, his palate. Do you know, this stuff still happens today. There's a story that was from, I believe, the late, maybe in the 90s, where three apartment complexes in Jerusalem burnt down. Because one caught fire, and then somebody wasn't sure whether it was, it was on Shabbat, and they weren't sure whether it was work to call the fire department. Not, I'm not joking. So they call the rabbi, and it takes 30 minutes for the rabbi to, to render an answer because there's something to do with the electric current, and by breaking the current to make a phone call, that that then triggers work. So for 30 minutes, they debate whether or not it's okay to call the fire department. They, the answer is yes, but by the time they get the yes, three apartment complexes burned down. Three buildings burned down. So, Shabbat's complicated. Sabbath is, is complicated. We don't always get at it the right way. And these guys, it, it, when, when, we, when we find in the, in the Bible it says the Jews or the Jewish leaders, it's and certainly the religious elite, the rulers, the authorities, the ones who are you know, the ultra-Orthodox of today that are walking through in all black and are they're praying at the wall and doing incredible things to remember the holiness of God's name and to observe that, but also putting heavy burdens on people still to this day. And this man gets confronted because of the simple act of carrying the mat. And the man replies as he's carrying his pallet or his mat or whatever that the reason that he's doing it when they ask him why he's doing it is because the person who healed him told him he had to do so. Pretty good answer, right? Just giving it as it is. But he doesn't even know Jesus' name. <laughs> and so this is kind of in the area where I start stop feeling sorry for the guy. He doesn't even know Jesus' name. But don't worry. John tells us Jesus actually goes and hunts the guy down at the temple. And why does he go and hunt him down? He goes and hunts him down to warn him because Jesus realizes that the physical healing isn't enough. He speaks directly to his heart. He says, look, buddy. You can't sin. You can't live in a life of sin. Stop sinning or something worse than the 38 years of illness is going to happen to you. That might sound really harsh, but I want to remind you who said it. King of kings, the Lord of lords, who's living into the fullness of his ministry. It seems to suggest to me that his sin and his illness are tied together. You remember later when they ask, you know, why is this man, later in John when they ask, why is this man blind? Is it a sin or his parents? And he says, neither. Apparently, there's lots of ways in which people get, you know, have issues that, that are going on in their lives. And in this particular case, Jesus warns him, you better, you, you need to stop saying. So Jesus goes and hunts the guy down. And as soon as Jesus goes and hunts the guy down, what does he do? 
he, he promptly goes to the people who are the potential enemies of the healer, and he identifies Jesus to them. I'm 100% certain that he knew that he was incriminating Jesus. It's astonishing. It's an astonishing act of betrayal, isn't it? He's literally just, you know, maybe minutes or, or, or a little bit into his, his newfound healing and freedom, and he turns it around. You know, don't you think maybe I'm on target when I wonder to myself if perhaps he hadn't done something like that, treated other friends the same way? Maybe that's why he didn't have anybody there to help him. And was there just something inside of this guy that had him in a place where he was more anxious to get in tight, buddy up with cool people who had official power than to be loyal to a helper who had divine power? I don't know. I don't know what it is about this guy. I'm only confessing these questions come up in my heart because I'm trying to persuade myself to defend this guy. It's like a cheesy 80s high school comedy. You know, where the kid who doesn't have any friends, the girl who can't get a date, the guy who's not popular, new to the school, nobody likes him, and all of a sudden, you know, you know this, this group of loyal friends stay with him and they, 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 or her, and they give credibility to the person. And once they finally have some opening into the cool kids club, they abandon all of the friends that actually stuck with them through thick and thin and join the cool kids club, and then they, they're mean to the people who actually befriended them. Isn't this the plot to every cheesy 80s movie with really good music? Maybe the really good music just my opinion. It's like a weird plot like this where you'd think, this guy just literally brings healing to you and then you throw him under the bus. I, don't, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's deep betrayal. Uh, compare him to the guy that I mentioned who was born blind in John 9. When he's questioned about his healing, he just simply says about Jesus, he's a prophet. And the answer of he's a prophet gets this guy in trouble with the authorities who, who push on him to discredit Jesus in some way, right? Well, you know, he's, he's a sinner because he healed you on the Sabbath. Instead, what this guy does, this formerly blind guy, challenges the authority of the authorities, challenges the arrogance of them. And, and he, in the end, he acknowledges Jesus as Lord. He says, you know, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But I can tell you what, I couldn't see you five minutes ago, and now I can. I like that. That is the kind of courage I want to see in the man at the pool. Instead, I see a guy who goes out of his way to solicit, like to get in good, the favor of those who are in power, and he immediately denies the one who's healed him. It's really difficult to defend a guy like this. Are you with me? Are you at all with me? Have you ever read this story? Do you guys just gloss over them and read the healing and not even press into the details? I mean, this guy is not an easy guy to like. I mean, look, let's be real. Each, each of us has our own personality flaws, or at least you guys do. <laughs> we all have our flaws. And this guy's flaws are hard for me to stomach, and so I have to put out extra effort to try to understand him. It's, do you know it's natural to empathize with a person whose failings are like your own? Think about that. I mean, there's something actually good about that. People who have experienced healing in a certain way tend to be much more equipped to bring healing to people who are in a similar place in life. I have a friend who is a doctor who used to tell patients who had back pain, suck it up when they, after back surgery until he got his, his back destroyed and had surgery and couldn't get out of pain. So we tend to empathize with people whose failings are a lot like our own. That's why we should choose our friends according to their faults. Think about it. And Jesus said this. He said it was really easy for us to love those who love us, who are like us. But the test of our following of Jesus doesn't come by loving people who are like me. It comes when we are asked to love our enemies, to love people who aren't like us. So when I say of somebody else's conductor, I think of like Daniel or somebody who's just hard to like for me. I'm not saying they'd be hard to like for you. Somebody's hard, and I say, I just can't understand how he could say or do or act or feel or believe such a thing. The Holy Spirit answers to me, well, why don't you give it a try? Why don't you try to understand? And indeed, that's, that's exactly what Jesus did. When the man by the pool answered him, answered Jesus' question, you know, do you want to be healed with a whiny, 
declaration of his own problems. Jesus didn't abandon him or lecture him. He healed him. Do <laughs> you see it? It's very clear that Jesus gave him the benefit of the doubt. What do we call this? What do we call this, what Jesus did? We call this grace. This is the picture of grace as it appears in real life when we get something we don't deserve. What if Jesus had gone around Israel during his time and had performed a healing ministry on the basis of some sort of admissions committee? I'm sure this man wouldn't have made it. I'm certain he wouldn't have made it. Someone on the committee like me would have said, look, Jesus, this guy really isn't a, a prime prospect. I know you can, I, I mean, you're Jesus, so you tell him to take up your mat and walk. He'll do it. But he's going to flunk out like in a week. He's not going to be following you. you know, and, and I would have been right, wouldn't I? You know, and so he would have never got in. And, of course, you know, anybody who's on that committee with me, if you're, not, if you're saying you wouldn't have felt that way, I don't think you're telling the truth. But if anybody who's a fellow doubter with me, we would have been right. He did flunk out in his newfound power of getting around on his own like a kid with a new pair of tennis shoes. You know, you ever see kids with new shoes running around like they're faster than they've ever been? That's how I see this guy just like beat, woo, 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 running around and the, with his mat under his arm. And the, and the Pharisees are religiously going, what's the 38-year cripple guy doing working on the Sabbath? Wait, what's the 38-year-old cripple guy doing running? Isn't it a... It, interesting or amazing to you that, the, thir- that the, the religious elite never actually go, wow, you're healed. He's not running around, though, telling people about Jesus, is he? But he immediately uses this newfound gift to portray Jesus to the authorities. And the end of this passage tells us that because of his, because of his turning Jesus in, the heat of persecution actually turns up. I know this is actually helping to perfect and bring about God's will, but I don't like it. I'd rather this guy go around and tell people what amazing healer Jesus is. But I, I want to bring this down to a, to, to, a, to a, I guess like a proposition. For me anyway. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the way it works for me. I'd rather bet with Jesus on people who lose and are losers than to reject them and be right about them. I'd rather bet with Jesus. How many of you would rather bet with Jesus? And it may offend you that I call this guy a loser, but let me tell you, this guy's a legitimate loser. He's never won anything. I mean, this guy says it. You can hear it in his statement. While I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. This guy's literally never run a race of any kind in 38 years, maybe never in his life. This was his autobiography in a sentence. Every time the waters are stirred, people run down ahead of me and leave me behind. I never get there. This is a guy who lost every race. And, and, and if some modern-day, you know, power of positive thinking, best life now preacher said to him, you need a better self-image. You know, just think of some time you're at your best and form in your mind a picture of what it's like to be, picture yourself as a winner. This guy would have sat there looking at an empty screen. He didn't have anything to cling on to, does he? He's thinking, well, I remember that time where I, you know, I beat everybody else to the water. I've known some people like that. Do you know anybody like that? This is why I, I put up the picture of Daniel. I, I think I can see Daniel's face in this. This guy just didn't win. Don't tell Daniel there's a winner deep down inside of you. He knows better. Don't tell this guy. And sometimes, I don't know, sometimes there are persons who, like, you know, whose parents didn't really want them or, or if they did, their parents didn't know how to express love. Or maybe they, they've experienced a loss or trauma or things that have brought pain. When it comes in families, I'm, I, I can tell you from enough ministry experience that I'm relatively certain that there are some families where defeatism is passed on from generation to generation. It's, it's like a malignant you know, strain and, and we're, we're bred to expect the worst. And, and so no wonder if people have kind of, this has been the story of their family. It's like Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump. That we, you know, you find these people lying by the metaphorical pool of life without ever finding anything abundant, in, you know, the abundant healing that, that kind of awaits them. And, and because they become so self-despising, they actually encourage rejection. They come to this kind of setting like where there's healing that's going to happen, saying to themselves, people here won't like me. They won't like me. And sure enough, we, we prove them right, don't we? So in time, the only thing they have is to take pride in is what? 
It's their defeat. The only thing they have to really, the only medals they have on the wall are how they, they finish last place every time. It's not just a victim mentality. It's actually bigger than that. They, they, they actually come to the place of rejoicing in the size and the scope of their defeat. That's what this guy's doing. I've never won. I never get ahead of anybody. If they're ill, they'll tell you the doctor says he's never seen an infection this big. Never seen a mass this large. I mean, kind of, sort of, in a half-joking way, the truth of the matter is everybody has to have something to glory in. And if we don't cling to the glory of God and seeing that supernatural mindset where the unseen real is greater than the temporal, that we can actually come to a point where what we glory in is the defeat. We actually can come to the point where we glory in the size of the defeat. And I'm going to close. This is it. I've been praying... Do you know you can pray and preach at the same time? I've been praying because I feel much like a, a, a jet pilot right now who, who's having trouble with landing gear. Not quite sure how to land the plane right now. I don't really have a neat story or a neat way to wrap it all up. And what I do on those Sundays, and, you know, they're often. It's not rare. I trust that deep will reach out to deep. And, and God has a desire to, to speak something into your heart and to do ministry in your heart that is beyond anything I can do. But I'll tell you, um, I've been hanging out in this passage. And at the end of the day, I, I, I really do, I've come to feel sorry for this guy. I've looked at his case long enough that I'm ready to, to defend him with my life. Although I have a little bit of anxiety that my argument hasn't really impressed you. I, I see this guy as being possessed by some sort of nasty, relatively common spiritual cancer. And, and by God's grace, I intend that whenever and wherever I meet him, to help him. It isn't fun. I oftentimes tell people when we used to be really active in, in ministering amongst homeless folks, people would go out and they'd feed people, homeless people food, and the homeless guy would respond, and, um, and people would get all excited about it and say, man, this is great. And I'd say, well, you know, you don't want to talk him down off off the high, but you'd realize that there's, there's other times it, would, it wouldn't look so good. Now, maybe I've told you the story before about helping a homeless guy in my home church that one of the other pastors said, hey, I don't think we should do what you're wanting to do. The guy wanted to take a shower because he said he had a job interview the next day. He drank a lot. We kind of knew who he was, kind of smelled on his breath, but he was looking to get himself back on his feet and get a job. He wanted to take a shower. The other pastor said, not a good idea, but if you'll be responsible for it, that's fine. I said, I'll be responsible for him. He went in, take a shower, came back out, said to me, thank you so much. I cleaned up. It's great. I appreciate it, man. You know, I said, well, let's pray that you get that job done. We pray. I go back in to clean up, and I look, and what he'd done is he defecated on the ground and wiped it all over the walls. That is fun. That is fun. Huh? She said that's not funny. I said it is funny. That's what happens. You, wanna, you know what that's called? It's called ministry. Amen. It's what it looks like sometimes. And if your expectation is, is it's never going to go that way, then I'm telling you, just pack up your ministry tent and go home. I pack up your Christian tent and go home. Pack up your Christian tent and go home. Amen. Jesus doesn't navigate his way through here with an admissions committee or an evaluation like I would. He just says... You're healed. Take up your mat and go. It isn't always fun because there aren't always spectacular recoveries. This, you know, when recoveries do happen with guys like this guy that we meet, you don't even usually, people don't realize the extent of the miracle because in, in truth and reality, in this day and age, um, people struggle in these ways that are really subtle. And they get by in life in ways we don't always really see what's going on. It's not as dramatic as deliverance, like take up your mat and go home, or even as dramatic as like getting delivered from a drug culture or a conversion on death row, the kinds of things you go, wow, that's really powerful. I heard testimonies like that in Israel that blew me away. But I tell you what, I'm still awed by the Lord, by Jesus, who stops by one day before the absolute, in my mind, quintessential, how do you say that word? Quintessential. That word, textbook case of a loser. A man who never even won a race in his life, and he asked him if he wanted to be healed. And without even getting the right answer, Jesus nevertheless heals him. And in the end, in response to it, it looks like Jesus lost on this man because the guy betrayed him. But you know what? 
it doesn't matter. Hear that again. It doesn't matter. You know why? Because Jesus died not only for those who accept his salvation, but for those who reject it. Now that, brothers and sisters, is grace. If you'd stand with me. I'm going to pray, but I'll just tell you as a guy who's received a whole lot of that, that grace, a whole lot of that unconditional love of that unmerited favor, I don't just rejoice in the irrational judgment of grace. I feel compelled to follow it to live my life by it, to defend the undefendable, and to even take up the defensive guy I really don't like. What if we lived our lives that way? So I'm going to pray at the altar and you do what Jesus tells you to do. And Father, we ask in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who in the spiritual realm would stoop down to those who didn't deserve it, and offer grace and healing. It's beyond our understanding. Certainly beyond mine. Lord, I need more of your grace for myself, but I need a whole lot more to be able to minister to people who I don't think deserve it. Because the fact of the matter is, Lord, none of us do. None of us deserve the perfection of your glory. So I ask, Lord, on behalf of those who may be here this morning who feel like they're perpetually stuck in that losing category. That they don't have any images in their mind of times of winning. That Jesus, in fact, speaks out to you right now and says, if you will take up your mat and walk, there is healing for you here and now. May not look like that, guys, but it's real. All you have to do is say yes. You don't have to reject it anymore. You don't have to reject yourself anymore. So come and receive what it is that the Lord desires to do to you. You can do it here at the altar with me. You can come and kneel next to me and we'll pray together. Or you can stay where you are so nobody will see. It's fine. But at some point, you're going to have to get out of where you are and move to where the Lord wants you to be. You're going to have to take up your mat and walk. In Jesus' name.